Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1203, with guest Michael Van Sickle. Recorded Thursday, October 1st, 2015. Hey, 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 it's Carl and Richard. I'm Carl Franklin. Howdy, howdy. Hey, what's up, Richard? I'm doing the thing with the stuff, man. Thing with the stuff. I, you know, now it's October, so finally shut down the outdoor kitchen, burned off the grills and stuff, got them all cleaned and sort of packed up, so uh, they uh, they can take for take some weather, and we only go out there once in a while. So this is being recorded the 1st of October, yep. right? But, uh, of course, it comes out later. But we're about to get a big hurricane here. Yeah, I've seen the warnings. It's, yeah. it's in the Bahamas right now. Wahim is its name, and it's a bugger of a storm. It is. And I was supposed to be going north in a convertible to see the foliage this year. <laughs> and it turns out that that may not happen now. <laughs> I just like the idea of you being in a convertible <laughs> in a hurricane. In a hurricane, right. <laughs> Try to put the top up and you fly away. Yes. <sighs> That'd be like Donald Trump. Oh, man. Only a car version. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's all interesting. I hope everybody survived that by now and that we're all safe and sound. And yep. let's roll Better No Framework music. Awesome. Make it all better. All right, dude. So this is uh, something that one of the uh, – that um, Brian McKay, one of the AppVNX guys, found. Oh, yeah. Go to tinyurl.com slash liveicons, L-I-V-I-C-O-N-S, or just bingle liveicons. Interesting. Or just go to liveicons.com for crying out loud. <laughs> Pick one. But what I did was I brought you to the examples page. So th oh, these are okay. just little web weblets, whatever you want to call them, that, uh, that you can use in in uh, your CSS or whatever, but they're little animations that happen when you hover over these buttons or items or objects or whatever they are. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard, you know, what? I've seen these lately. This has sort of been a hip thing, and they've been calling them sprites, too. That sounds about right. Yeah. Just you know, little you, graphics that they have little bits of animation and things. You're in surfing them. the web. You got all that CPU and all dressed up and nowhere to go, man. You know, you just use a little bit of it. Yeah. Make things swirl around and jump about and twitch and pop and, you know, have some trouble. Yeah. I love it. As long as it doesn't interfere with anything, go for it. Yeah. But I like these examples here. Like reload is that little recycle thing and it just sort of spins. Right. Yeah. It's neat. Yeah, better indication of what's actually going on. Yep. So you don't have to go all WPF. You don't have to get credibly elaborate. And I'm actually making a call out to my comment here. Just uh, use a little animation. And people have made it for you. You don't even have to create it. Yep, live icons. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's uh, talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1193, the one we did with Mr. Hollis when we were talking about universal apps. Mm -hmm. And this comment comes from Jorgen Svidardson, who actually made his comment on the Facebook posting of uh, this particular show. And he okay. says, Hi, guys. I love your show. And it makes my bi-weekly 450-kilometer commute seem like invested time rather than wasted. For oh, those man. who don't know, metric 450 kilometers over 200 miles. Wow. Twice a week. Pushing 300 miles. Good oh, Lord. Geez. That's a commute, dude. Yeah. Universal apps are great, but can we please have a WPF revival? Right. Aren't we? You know, it's all XAML in the end these days. You know, there's not really any separation between that. And I, more, I love, I love WPF. I totally agree. 
I work on applications for enterprise users and store apps just don't cut it as apps. They are very restricted with regards to IO. Does store apps still exist? I think Win 10 basically breached all of this. It's kind of over. I also have to maintain compatibility with older OSs. WPF is really, really great for the desktop and does not deserve to be left out in the cold. Absolutely. Hmm. If anything needs to be left out in the cold, WinForm should be it. Uh oh. Oh boy. Here we go. For WinForms. Maybe Microsoft should open source WPF and let others take it further. We, and by that I mean me and the rest of my team, would really like a Linux port of WPF. The rumored work being put into WPF doesn't sound like much. Open source is the only way to go, in my opinion. Thank you. I look forward to my next commute already. Okay. Which I thought was very kind. Now, let's get a little more serious here. Mm. First off, there's a XAML team, and XAML's being worked on, and WPF is part of XAML, so there's stuff going on, make no mistake. Yep. In some respects, I would say WPF has been so complete for so long, there's just not that much to do. What we really need is guidance. But I would point out that there's every appearance that the next versions of Office are going to have a XAML dependency, and that makes it permanent. Mm-hmm. Permanent, permanent, permanent. Well, mm-hmm. it's already permanent. It's in the OS now. It's never going away, so right. don't worry about that. Right. The, the quote Metro store app thing is sort of changed anyway. You know, everything's a windowed app again. That's been dialed back. So you need to go take a look in the Win 10 context and I think you'd be far better off. But it's the still XAML thing, though. What's that? Uh, Universal app still XAML. It's all XAML. Yep. Now the Linux port comment is interesting because obviously Microsoft has open source server core of .NET, but not necessarily the client. However, Look at the trajectory that we're on. Mm. And especially when you look at from, and I'm speculating here, plain and simple. You look at the trajectory we're already on. You look at things like um, Islandwood and the Android-related projects. So they are bringing those development environments into studio. Wouldn't it make sense to bring client technologies to cross-platform as well? And mm. isn't the only logical way to make that open source? Mm-hmm. So I don't think you're dreaming anything weird here, but I don't, what concerns me is this idea that they're not working on it so should open source it because dumping code into open source is a bad behavior and it certainly doesn't protect the project. The The way to go is what the .NET teams have done, what ASP.NET has done is to do your development in open source in public with everybody contributing that wants to contribute. Yeah. So I hope all of those things come true. Uh, I think your ideas are cool. Jorgen, but uh, we still got a ways to go. You know, stay tuned. Watch this space. Yep. I am optimistic. There are lots of speculations we could make that yes. we will not. I think I point. just did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jorgen. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of the social medias like Jorgen did. We post every show to Facebook and Google Plus, And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. By the way, Jurgen said that he has a bi-weekly commute. Do you know the definition of bi-weekly? Isn't that every other week? It's both twice a week and every other week. It's both. Go to any dictionary and look it up. The first definition occurring twice a week. The second definition occurring every two weeks. Come on. Can't you pick one? Yeah. I was always confused about that. And then I looked it up in the dictionary. And sure enough, the dictionary says, I, I, I have no idea. Yeah, no, I always thought it was every two weeks. Well, that's what I thought too. And then I would, and then I'd go, I'd say twice weekly for twice a week. Yep. Or semi weekly. Right. Or yeah. semi weekly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting so, difference. But- I, I am worried in general. This is also the whole discussion around figuratively versus literally. Oh, I yeah. get that we're using the language that way. I'm not happy that dictionaries are giving in. Dictionary's job is to give in to the usage of the language in yeah. context. And not that, when it's the meaning is literally the opposite. At some point, this becomes doublespeak. <laughs> Did you just say literally the opposite? <laughs> That's funny. Because it was literally the opposite. talking about literally, which people use as figuratively now. Yes, and yet I used it right. literally, literally. Yeah. And which now, is not to say I use it figuratively, figuratively, but literally, literally. You can find anybody who's over 60 years old who complains about the use of the word awesome well, Eileen complained about it, right? Awesome should be reserved for things you know, that cause awe. Things that actually invoke awe, not meh. <laughs> 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 Hi, 
How you doing today? Awesome. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Yeah, yeah. We're all grammar grammar Nazis these days. All right. I'm I'm sorry. Mike's sitting in the wings. He's itching to join this conversation. So let's bring him in. Mike Van Sickle is an application architect for Sterling Jewelers in Akron, Ohio. He started his career as a mechanical engineer in the automotive industry before changing to software engineering. He's passionate about learning new programming languages and is comfortable working in JavaScript, Go, C Sharp, and Java. Mike is also an author for Pluralsight. He regularly publishes courses on Go in order to try and get the word out about this simple yet powerful language. When he's not writing code, Mike loves to go camping and take long walks with his wife and two girls. Welcome back, Mike. How you doing, Carl and Richard? Just fine. Just great. Go. You know, I was impressed. You know, the first time I heard about Go was from Anthony Eden from DNS, from DN Simple, uh, when he was on the, the show and he talked about how he built DN Simple in Go. And just how the the difference in performance from you know other languages and platforms was just unbelievable. Is performance the main reason why people reach for Go? Well, actually, uh, performance is certainly something that they're aiming for. But uh, the basic problem that was trying that uh, Google was trying to solve was not a performance problem in running the application. It was more of a simplicity of environment problem. So. Mm. While Go is trying to be really, really fast, it's really focusing on trying to be very simple and very fun to learn. Okay, and is it simple because they've removed parts of uh, typical languages that sort of provide complexity, or how how is it simple? Yeah, um, so one of the things that is considered when they're looking at Go is a fairly new language, and so it's gaining new functionality, but they don't want to add functionality that's going to add excessive complexity. So you, so it is very true. There are certain things that you simply can't do in Go. Um, so, for example, if uh, anybody coming from a C Sharp or Java background is used to working with generics, you've got generic lists and generic hash maps or, or dictionaries. In Go, they are aware of a, there's a strong desire to have generics in Go, but the language owners, the uh, the administrators of the language really want to make sure that if they add that, it's not going to make the whole project excessively complex to learn or to maintain. And so they're trying to be very careful to keep that simple mindset, uh, that simple um, philosophy. Well, do they um, think that adding generics to C-sharp made C-sharp applications overly complex and unmaintainable? Well, they don't really speak to the details um, of what's keeping them from adding generics, and they certainly don't speak to how another language might have implemented it. But if you look at some of the numbers, uh, C-sharp at my last count, um, I was doing a presentation about Go, and so I, I looked up these numbers. C-sharp has something in the order of 66 keywords mm. in the language. Mm. Java somewhere around 50, and Go has 25. Wow. So it's still a new language, and I'm sure when C-sharp was three years old, it didn't have 66 keywords. But at the same time, that's kind of the, it's one of the driving philosophies is if they can do it with the existing constructs in Go, they're going to try and make that happen first and then add in only when there's a, a, a definite value added that justifies the additional complexity. Okay. So, I mean, there's the element here of the language, which clearly is the emphasis of the site on golang.org. What's the dev environment? So, uh, most of the developers that you're going to find with Go, there are there is IDE support. There's an Eclipse plugin called GoClips that works very well. That's actually how I started because I kind of came from, I'm actually a, a .NET guy um, in my past. That's where I started. Good. So, I'm used to a Visual Studio. So, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. Now I'm using Atom. Uh, a lot of um, so Atom from GitHub. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of other developers in Go. Vim is very very popular for Go developers. Uh, there's a um, a community supported library called Go Code that provides autocomplete, very similar to how OmniSharp is providing autocomplete for C Sharp with right. VS Code. They have the same thing. Um, in the Go community. So most people are developing Go in text editors that are augmented by these additional plugins. Have you do you use OmniSharp or anything to give you the experience of Visual Studio in Atom or are you just bare bones? Um again, the the 
autocomplete plugin for uh, Go is called uh, is called Go Code, and I and I definitely use that. Yeah. There's some tricks to getting it to work, but but uh, once you get it working, I mean, once you have IntelliSense or autocomplete, it's really hard to step away from that. Uh, sure. And so, certainly with Go being a strongly typed language, uh, it the compiler knows everything that's there. Uh, and so you can certainly leverage that in order to um, get autocomplete functionality. And I think most people will use some sort of plugin to to take advantage of that. So and that plugin is called Go Code. Yes, you can find it on GitHub. Right um, under NSF Go Code. All right. There's actually so th- a guy who's maintaining it. And there's quite a there's quite a community around it to to enhance it and support it. But uh, there's pretty much one guy. If you follow it, he's he's. Uh, kind of the commander in chief of that uh, of that library right now. Well, yeah, and, and you know, irrespective of studio, autocomplete is a productivity tool. You, you need it, right? Exactly, and it's a quality tool. And again, if you think about simplicity as a primary goal of Go, simplicity to get the correct application, autocomplete lines right up with that. Right? You want to be able to hit dot and get the fields that are available to you, and so that's it's a natural fit into the Go ecosystem to support something like that. Do you find that having um, less keywords, obviously it's working for you and it, and it's helping you uh, in in your programming, but do you ever find a um, that you you just wish it did something that it didn't do? Uh, yes, very often you'll find. So an example, uh, Go doesn't use classes. It doesn't use a traditional inheritance model. So there isn't, you're not going to inherit um, one class from another like you might do in a C Sharp or a Java. And there are certainly times when that's a little bit uncomfortable to work with. Um, but at the same time, um, so you, you end up finding yourself writing more lines of code periodically in order right. to, to achieve the same goal. But what you find at the end is that if you went out right now uh, with some with quite a bit of programming experience but not in Go, if you read the Go source code, you could probably get a pretty good idea about what's going on just by reading the language, just by reading the source code. Mm-hmm. And that's what you really gain. You don't have to, you're not constantly looking up, well, what is that keyword doing? And I don't understand this syntax here. There are very few syntactic structures in Go, mm-hmm. and so you just find them repeated constantly over and over and over. So it becomes, you might have longer code, but at the same time, the code is much simpler to read. Yeah, okay, I get that. And, uh, it, well, I'm, I'm not so big on inheritance anyway. I mean, I'm not that I think it's bad or anything, but uh, I just don't find myself using it all that much anymore. And, right, you know, maybe that's just because of the kind of software I'm writing. I don't know, but uh, has that been well, your experience? Yeah, I think that people have found that inheritance, while in certain contexts, is very powerful. It's also very easy to write yourself into a deep hole that yeah. you can't get yourself out of. Sure is. So, so Go does use composition as a replacement for inheritance. So Go doesn't have classes. It goes back to more of a C model of a struct. Just a data, just uh, data fields pile, uh, stacked together in memory, mm-hmm. and you can have one struct that composes in an anonymous struct, and so you can have your struct foo inherit compose in bar, and for most use cases, foo will act like it's a bar. It'll have all the functionality. You can't use it. You can't pass it into a function that's expecting a bar. But it will gain all of the aspects and all of the the fields and, and methods that you uh, hooked on to bar. So you do get a composition model, but you don't have it as a you can't use it as inheritance for that kind of situation. Um, Go uses interfaces, and it relies heavily on interface based design. Uh, how's the typing system? So it's strongly typed. Um, mm-hmm. So you you're not going to there. Go is actually very, very firm about avoiding implicit typing, implicit casts. Uh, occasionally, you can convince it to do it. Like if you're def- defining a const and you say it's a float, you don't have to say it's a 10 dot. You can say it's a 10 and the compiler will forgive that. But you're not going to print out a 10. Uh, you're not going to concatenate an integer to a string and expect that to work. You're going to have to explicitly convert that into a string. And again, the intention there is to be very clear about what you're doing. So they're trying to avoid magic happening in the language. So anything that's going to happen, you're intentionally telling it to do it. 
And so the next person who's coming along, the maintainers of the application, which are arguably one of the primary audiences of the code, the maintainers of the application have a much clearer picture about what you were intending to do. All right. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of styles to language one way or the other. This is not a dy- dynamic approach to things. This is very well imperative, right? Like just driving straight ahead. This is what we do and how we're going to do it. Right. There are situations. So there is a fallback catch-all called an, uh, an empty interface. Mm-hmm. Everything in Go mm-hmm. honors the empty interface. And so if you really need to do that, you need to pass in something generic, you're going to pass in an empty interface. And then it becomes a documentation issue because since that is the everything, right. often that interface has implied constraints based on how it's about to be used. Well, now it's code determining what's in what 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 uh, empty interface values you're handling. Exactly mm-hmm. right. So for so, better or worse. For example, for Pluralsight right now, I'm creating a course on testing with Go. A lot of the testing functions that you use accept an empty interface, but really what they're expecting is a test function. Right. And so you have to know, well, this is the, the documentation says empty interface and you're reading and says, okay, well, that's a function that has this kind of a signature. I need to provide that. Otherwise, the application is going to going to uh, throw up on me. Um, let's talk about concurrency, because I know this is built into Go. How how is it built in? You, you'll recognize that as the concurrency model that Erlang uses for massive levels of concurrency, right? You've got hundreds of thousands of actors in many Erlang applications, yep. and the same thing is possible in Go. Yeah, we've, we've done a few shows now on actor model things um, in the .NET space, particularly Orleans and Akka.NET. And, of course, we've talked about Erlang, and we've talked about uh, uh, Elixir and uh, all of that whole stack. And it's very impressive. Especially to me, and I know you sort of glossed over it, but especially on the performance, I think that's because of the actor model in general and the way it's architected, or is there some special sauce about Go that makes it more performant? I guess you'd call it special sauce, but it's not that Go invented it. Go just sure. re-implemented it. So um, in... I'm not sure if C-sharp is still like this, but I know in, in Java, and I suspect C-sharp, if you spin up a new thread, it's the, the application is going to call down to the operating system and say, hey, I need a new process. I need a new thread. So with that comes what the operating system assumes a thread requires, which mm-hmm. is typically about a one megabyte stack space. Uh, yeah. At least the last time I researched it. So Go uses the same trick that Erlang uses. It uses what are called green, green threads. Those green threads are actually a proxy to a processor thread. So Go manages its own threads called Go routines, Mm -hmm. and it allocates them four kilobytes of RAM. It's either two or four, I can't remember right now. But instead of one meg that you're asking for, so if you think about running in a server environment, if you're running one megabyte per connection, you're going to max out your number of connections pretty fast. Sure. With with Go, hundreds of thousands of connections mean, well, okay, that's two gig gone. Right. We've still got 200 left, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you scale much, much broader. <laughs> so that's one of the things that really helps yeah. um, in a thinking about concurrency at the language level. They didn't have to add that in. That's just part of the language. And it's certainly a conversation we've been having about parallelism and, and writing scalable uh, code right. in the C-sharp world is saying, if you say create thread, you failed. You know, there's better tools and it's not necessarily the language that's important here, but you know, this is what the parallel task library was about was, you know, don't, you shouldn't be arbitrating how many threads should exist. You should be presenting the problem to the system and it'll arbitrate the threads. But, uh, this seems like the next level from that, you know, C sharp was not built to be a highly parallel language. Go seems like it's, it's built into its core. Right. There are a couple of concurrency models that I have found that work really well. So a lot of the code that I write on a day-to-day basis is JavaScript based. And I think JavaScript promises are, they just nail that problem, but they nail that problem in a concurrent, but not parallel space because JavaScript, at least right now, isn't really running parallelly. It's running concurrent uh, functions, but it only runs one at a time. When you start to get into multiple threads of execution at the same time, shared memory becomes a huge problem. And with the actor model, since you're passing messages, and those messages are guaranteed to have a single owner at any one time, 
you're in a much better position to understand, even with tens of thousands of things going on at the same time, you understand only one guy can access, only one actor can access that memory at one time. And so you don't really care about the rest of the world. It's it's really, in massive concurrency, I don't know how you would do it any other way. It's a beautiful, beautiful model. Well, yeah, and this is where we've come to with the Erlangs, elixirs, the entire actor model. It's about you don't want to know. Exactly, right. Yep, you just you spend as long as you're inside of that of that function or inside that actor. There's no other world except for I've got a channel me- bringing messages in, and I've got a channel that takes messages out, and the rest of the world can I, I don't care what's going on. Yep, exactly. Yeah, it's just the yeah, this sort of inherent design, writing your own locks, dealing with blocking and so forth. Like this is a mistake. Stop sharing memory. Make copies. We have lots. Exactly right. Now, <laughs> Go will let you. I mean, it's it's not trying to keep you at a super high level of abstraction with things like that. So if you're writing your own memory manager, in that case, you might actually want to get into managing your own mutexes and things like that. And Go certainly does support that, but you're not going to see that. That's library developers. That's that's people who are really into, I'm trying to solve a very specific, very high, high performance problem. And yeah, most, most developers, in my experience, they're using the concurrency model of using Go routines and the actor model. But it will let you get down there if you really want to play play down at that level. Yeah, I just can't imagine there are good reasons to be there. Like most of the time, it should you, remember in the old days, the beginning of .NET, was people, you can write your own garbage collector, you know, right? And then it became a gauge of how crazy are you. And it, it, this feels like that. It's like you know what? Let's. Yeah. Th- there's a couple of guys who've really got this concurrency thing figured out. You should trust them, right? And and because if you're that good at that, you would right. be and, those guys. You know, that's that's its own specialty. I've only met a couple of people ever in the decades I've been writing code that really were good at, at writing multi-threading code. Right. And part of I think part of the reason why those primitives are there is it actually um, just in August, uh, Go hit version 1.5 and it hit that critical point where Go is now compiled in Go. So nice. In order to that's the magic threshold, isn't it? Exactly right. That's when a language you're really dog fooding yourself when you say, OK, now I got to figure out how to write my own language in my own language. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where those primitives are really going to be used down there because something has to make the concurrency model work. Right. And they're not hiding it. So whatever. So if you have an instance of Go, you can write Go now. So it has to be able to support all that low level thing, all that low levels, um, those low level primitives. But at the same time. You, yeah, you shouldn't be working there. That's for the specialists. Just like I, I could probably figure out how to write a database if I spent a few decades on it. I'm just going to install somebody else's because I don't want to learn that. No, there's been some really small people solving this problem for a long time, and you should not reinvent. Exactly. This is code you don't want mm-hmm. to own. Hey, hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time for me to give you a riddle. Oh, why what's is, my riddle? Why is Go like a V8 engine? Why is Go like a V8 engine? High performance with no class. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's actually time to give away a music to code by audio and video collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to code by is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized quiet and groovy instrumentals specifically designed to promote focus. It will get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being more productive every day with music to code by. So see what all the fuss is about. Check it out at mtcb.pwop.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Richard Loden. Congratulations, Richard. Good name. And a golf clap for you, sir. Definitely a golf clap for Richard Loden. Richard just won music to code by. This is a... This is, uh, like I said before, this is my stuff. And um, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club that you got to sign up to win. All right, Mike, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, sir, what would you buy? You know, this question is a lot 
more fun when you hear somebody answer it instead of having <laughs> to answer it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> You'll notice we don't ask each other this question. Yeah. Uh, well, it, yeah, occasionally. But, uh, I, you know, I'd have to say the world of technology is so varied now. I don't even know where I would go. I mean, I thought about it'd be nice to have like a family of Surface Pros. So, you know, one for you have the mama Surface Pro, the, the daddy Surface Pro and the little baby Surface Pros. Yeah. For, you know, um, but I don't really know. We, we've got our electronics. Um, something I was thinking is maybe a collection of, so I've got young, young daughters and I'm very passionate about, I don't know if they're going to move into technology, but I want to make sure that that's an option for them. Right. So, uh, I think that's a big move in technology is women who code and things like that. So maybe a, a an evolution of robots that we could program together. And Ooh. I haven't researched this, but start with something that, you know, my five-year-old could help me work on yeah. and get lights to turn on and then move up through something that we could program and, and, you know, whatever, go get the mail or feed the cat or whatever. Uh, so let them evolve, l- get robots that would evolve with their experience and with their knowledge and with their, with their passion. That's cool, man. Neat. And, uh, you know, we've been having lots, we have these conversations all the time, but this stuff like um, yeah. g- uh, Lego Mindstorms, you know, where it's so small and programmable. And, it, you know, the big thing is with that five grand, you don't want a $5,000 robot. What you want is yeah. dozens exactly. you of $50 up, right? robots. <laughs> you want to be able to learn. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you get back to that whole actor model approach to things. Like, that's the kind of programming you want to do. And then, and you start getting those very creepy, you know, flock effects with robots. That would be cool. Cool and terrifying. And terrifying at the same time. All the good things are. Exactly. If you're not afraid of it, is it cool so, enough? So, one thing that I've realized is that the actor model, any sort of actor model platform or language, really lends itself well to the Internet of Things, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I was having a conversation with a guy. So I've had enough Pluralsight courses where now the community is starting to ask me, when can you do one on this, right? And and there was a, a gentleman who reached out to me. He's actually trying to put something together for the Olympics when they come to Brazil. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's exactly that. He, I, I don't want to get in details because that's kind of his thing. But there was this massive need for how do I take dozens of uh, signals that are coming into this environment handle that in a meaning in a in a reasonable way and give this experience to to my users and yeah it's it that's becoming the world right because sure. sensors are so cheap and so available why shouldn't our computers reach out into the real world and help us navigate it right for sure yeah and and just that's becoming the norm now with all of these things but i don't know it's always tough to launch a new language and i know i mean go has been around for a few years now it's just got to be really challenging. I mean, what brought you to it? Why did you get over there? You know, I think um, I was going through, when Go came out, I was going through a period where I was any new language, any language I could learn, except for Ruby. I could never get Ruby. But any, <laughs> any new language that came out, I was learning Python. I was learning JavaScript, PHP, Java. I wanted to learn it all. I was really passionate about the languages. And then this language came out called Go. And I'm like, well, Where's where's the rest of it? Because you're kind of done, right? Mm. And it's so little language. Exactly, right. And and I was going through one of the ways I was um, I was learning these language was uh, playing around on Project uh, Project Euler and trying oh, yeah. to solve those U- the Euler project. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to solve those problems. Is, it, is Euler Euler? I think Euler. you're right. Spelled yeah. Euler, pronounced Euler. Yeah, yeah, my calculus professor in college made very clear that it was Euler. <laughs> Right. So um, we got yelled at. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I was I was exploring actually the two languages I was trying to solve the problems were in F sharp and Go. And it was really interesting how these I, – I, I would call those – both of those language representatives of the next generation of programming languages. You've got functional, which is extremely popular right now. And then you also have these really simple languages that I think, to me, I don't know if anybody else would admit to it, but I think that they harken back to what JavaScript has really given us as we've really come to understand it, where the language is so simple. There's not much to JavaScript, right? Mm, yeah. You want to create a new object? Just do it. You want to call a function? Just do it. It, it, it. it doesn't get in your way. And I think Go is trying to be a member of that family. 
Um, and I just found I was so productive and adding parallelism. So I'd always solve the program, solve the problem on a single process, and then I'd parallelize it. And it was amazing how simple it was to get these complex problems that Project Euler throws at you and make it get a parallel solution. And now all of a sudden you're solving it 50 times faster, right? And so mm. that's what really got me on it. And then I just kept coming back to it. Um, it faded for a little while, but then Pluralsight came and they said, hey, we really want to strengthen our open source uh, course offerings. Nice. Anybody out there doing Go? Nobody else raised their hand. So I thought, hey, I love the language. I'll, uh, I'll do it. Well, it, so it, that's, yeah, yeah, that's where I started moving over there, just trying to get the word out. How we become evangelists. Yeah. You know, but, but, you know, you didn't go into Go thinking, I'm going to want to spread the word about this language. No, no. You know, when, when does that switch flip? Like, what's that moment? I think when you start seeing the community feedback and you start seeing that, right. you know, it's not just me doing this thing. It's not just me thinking, hey, maybe there's something here. And then you start thinking, well, y you, you also need that representative of what can you actually do and go. And, yeah. and you guys have had people on, I believe, talking about Docker before. Yep. Docker is one of the biggest things to hit virtualization since mm -hmm. virtualization, right? Yep. And that's all written, written in, in Go. Go. So yep. 20, that's 25, a really interesting point. Yeah, 25 keywords, and they write this entire revolutionary platform for virtualization. So that's what really, there's a lot of people really excited about it. It's a very fast language to learn, so it's, it's easy to prototype and get in there and start writing some code. And at the same time, you can build these tremendous applications at the end of it. No ceremony. What about testing infrastructure? Like, you know, the all of the stuff that goes into living in a new development language. Right. And that's that's where I think Go has shamelessly learned, t uh, taken the opportunity to learn from the languages that have come before it. Right. So if, if you want to do, uh, let's start even simpler. Uh, there are holy wars fought about where to put your curly brace, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. In Go, there are no holy wars because if you put your curly brace in the wrong place, it just won't compile. Right. Well, that's <laughs> also oh, the of language like, tells you it lives here. Well, that uh, you know, that's sort of like Old Testament God. You know, <laughs> lots of rules and no mercy. <laughs> I will exactly. strike you down. <laughs> it, and it seems like when you first think about that, you think, well, why would they spend time? Especially since I, I don't know, but writing a code formatter just really doesn't sound like a fun job for me. Yeah. But if you think about a world that everything is in source control, and you're trying to diff source files, yep. And people are using different formatting standards. You get all sorts of false positives about code that's changed. Sure. So go solve that problem by saying we're just going to settle on a set of rules, and right, wrong, or indifferent, it doesn't really matter. So we're just going to pick away, and mm. we're just going to do that. Tabs versus spaces. So, it, uh, I think everything is in spaces in Go. Right. I, I don't actually know about that, but curly braces have to be. So if you're doing like an if statement, cur the opening curly brace has to be on the on the line with the if. You cannot put it on the same line, otherwise it won't compile. So things like that, spacing, ordering of your input, of your imports, all of that stuff, there are conventions that they've adopted just to make it simpler. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read, uh, if you've done, um, had a, a long series of, of imports or class includes and you're trying to find something and people just, or better is enumerations. So somebody creates an enumeration and they just put it in whatever order that, it, that they want versus mm -hmm. somebody who alphabetizes, mm -hmm. right? It's a lot easier to find if you alphabetize. So that's the kind of thing. So when you start talking about um, documentation generating generation, documentation generation is built into the language. There's a sub tool, uh, there's a sub command in Go called GoDoc that will create your your documentation from your code comments. Nice testing. Hmm. There's a sub command called Go test. So all of these things they've really thought about. If it's important then why don't we make it a first-class citizen and make sure that when we release a new version, people aren't waiting for the library to update? We're going to update the library as part of the language. Right. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Has there been any time you've wanted to pull your hair out using Go? <laughs> using templates. Okay. <laughs> templates are always challenging. Uh, so Go has a as a templating model, like if you've used Razor View Engine or anything like that, right? Yeah. You you have a templating. So um, Go's debug story is not terribly strong yet. Uh, debuggers are are a complicated problem, 
and it's a problem that the the team has limited uh, resources, and so they've been focusing on things like garbage collection, making sure that that's efficient and as fast as possible. Uh, things like that, really making sure the infrastructure moving go on to go is is a big project uh, that we talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah. So the debugger they had they had integration into they do have integration into GDB the GNU debugger. Uh, right. It's not great because it doesn't understand Go. It's really a, built to understand C and C++ languages, right, uh, or applications. So there are open source initiatives. There's one called Delve um, that seems to be taking the lead that they're trying to address the debugging story about what happened with my code when something went wrong. Right now, a lot of Go code is debugged using print statements. Yeah, the uh, old-fashioned so way. Exactly. Yeah. Now, Go is simple enough that, uh, to, to be fair to the language, a lot of times it's pretty easy to find where things went, where things went sideways. But at the same time, you have to understand that uh, you're not going to just set a breakpoint and, and uh, roll from there. At least I mean, where that gets hairy is because you are dealing with concurrency, right? You've got many things running simultaneously. It's like that can spew a lot of messages. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the, par the challenges of a debugger, right, is what what go routine am i on here what is the yeah. data context that i'm working in how do i understand how do i jump between go routines if i need to see well this one might be doing something that affected that other one so how do i do that and that's a that's a really tough problem delve is um, supported by a guy named Derek parker and he is really working to really solve this problem um at well and you see people like uh, Rob Pike uh, on the on GitHub talking to him about how to, how Go works with certain things. Rob is one of the founders of Go, and so there's a lot of interest in it. But at the same time, the team, the core team for Go is is limited, and so they they have to pick and choose their battles right now. So the community is stepping yeah, up. and I'm looking at the repository for Delve on GitHub. And Derek Parker's got 620 commits. I mean, the next guy up, and not to diminish the guy's contribution, is 30. So clearly, one guy's driving this debugger. Right. One guy's driving it, but at the same time, there's a lot of people. I, I, yeah, the download count's huge. There's lots of stars. Like, people are using right. this. But writing debuggers is not for the faint of heart, especially parallelism debuggers. Like, holy yeah. man. Yeah, when I started following uh, that project on GitHub, it's amazing. The, the, the messages that are going back and forth i'm like i have i hope you guys understand what you're talking about because yes they start talking about dwarf and code general it yeah okay <laughs> leave it to those experts <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh it's an interesting challenge and and definitely an area of specialty so when you come is there any run times around go once you're compiled it's just source this is old school kind of thing so when you compile an application at least right now you get one file at the end right and executable. Uh, exactly. So all of the all of the libraries, all of the dependencies, you don't get into DLL hell. There's a version of it in Go, but you don't get into DLL hell because there are no external dependencies. Everything that right. you're going to use for your application is compiled into that. Yeah, no so, DLLs. Yeah. So for a runtime, I think if you squinted and looked at it, my suspicion is that yes, there is a man a runtime manager, but it's right. packed in. Uh, so you're not going to install uh, some other library that has to be dependent on. So a, a very small Go application. So if you just do your Hello Go um, application, it's actually going to come out to be, I, I, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but it's about three megabytes because it's putting the entire Go language in there uh, as, as well as your program. Wow. Huh. Yes, it's just huh. compiling everything into it. Now, that breaks the question, you know, the reason we went to managed runtimes and virtual machines was to get away from memory leaks and things like that. Like, how do we protect ourselves from those kinds of issues? So Go, while it's fully compiled down to machine code, is actually a garbage-collected language. Nice. Okay. So it, it has, and again, that's where glad smarter people than me are working on this problem. But uh, they, th again, with the philosophy of simplicity, managing memory does not make you more productive solving your problem. It makes your application no. potentially faster as long as you don't leak memory yeah. and blow up the server, right? But it it the, one of the core ideas of simplicity says, well, we should manage memory for you. Now, in previous generations of Go, they had something that was working, but um, it was in a lot of applications, 
I make web applications, so if it takes 15 milliseconds for a garbage collector to run, doesn't often cause me problems. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but in no. real time, they, you're already on the internet. You've got exactly more time right. That. Right. My server's sitting around anyway. It's waiting for something else to do. So, but in real time data acquisition in Internet of Things scenarios, sure. now all of a sudden. Yeah. I really need to be able to acquire data at 500 hertz, at 500 megahertz, and I don't want you to stop. So right. garbage collecting uh, collection times are, are becoming... Or at least you want to be able to control it. I mean, yes. garbage collection is a reasonable thing to do. It's just a question of when. What what people who in the real-time world really get excited about is you decide when to collect, not I decide when to collect. And when you do decide to collect, you don't want the machine to just stop. Right. You don't want everything to stop for however many milliseconds. Right. So one of the things that with Go 1.5 is they completely rewrote how garbage collection works. And they had a dramatic, I don't remember, it's like 80% uh, less um, time spent in the stop the world. Because garbage collectors tend to have that stop the world time where they actually have to free up and rearrange memory. Yeah. Yeah, They reduced that time dramatically with Go 1.5 and they set themselves up for further enhancements as they move forward. As a matter, I just saw something come through today where there's another. Um, proposal coming through into the language that's going to even take it another step farther into making the garbage collector lighter and lighter so that wow. you get all of the advantages of it. But again, focus it on a, on a like C-sharp does, focus it on it as a real problem that it's going to be there. We really want to make this a, a world-class solution. So let's uh, focus on making sure that that's going to not get in people's way. It's going to keep things simple and not make things hard. Right. But I think it's a powerful point that this is a managed memory environment. You're just compiling to a single executable, not shipping a runtime, which you could do with C Sharp and, and Java. Just most people don't. So where does Go run? What platforms? Um, Go runs pretty much everywhere. So uh, all the big, all the big boys: Linux, Unix, uh, Windows. Uh, there are several others. Uh, there is a project underway an experimental project to actually get go to run on android and ios interesting yeah uh right now the experiment they're really looking at more supporting cast kind of stuff but not not ui not any of that stuff that's still you're going to be writing java or you're going to be writing objective c for those but they're trying to figure out how do can we make this language this runtime uh, move on there. Since it is fully compiled, it lines up with uh, iOS's standards of you can't import external code. Um, so it's really built to to line up with that. Apparently, and it works on Azure websites too. Oh, it does. Yeah, I, well, I was not aware of that. Well, I don't know if it's officially supported, but there are blogs. Uh, I know Wade Wagner wrote a blog post last year about um, about getting that to run in an Azure website. So it, I guess it uses CGI. Okay. Huh. Yeah, I I think that they're they're slowly starting they're slowly expanding the, the number of platforms that it's on because they right. really do want kind of that promise of of JavaScript or Java, right? Where I can write it once and run it anywhere. Uh now it's not write once run you have to it's write once compile anywhere, I suppose. Uh is where you you'd are you're at with Go. Uh but this also begs the question, you were talking about building web apps with Go. So what how do you do that? What's the HTTP interface to that? So this is where, this is another thing that you asked me how I got interested in Go and mm-hmm. HTTP is kind of how I kept getting it more and more interested. So Go's standard library is relatively small. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you look at the other uh, language. It goes with stuff, the 25 keywords. Yeah, exactly. Right. But you can get almost everything for a full stack web application platform right from the standard library. So I can spin up a file server that's spinning up that's serving static files with a compiled Go application, and, and I think it's three lines of code. Wow! Uh, so because <laughs> it's a because com- it. it's a common problem that people have, so why not have the language just give you a default out? Uh, yeah, have sure. the standard library give you a default option for it? Why makes people spin that up every time? Why make it an external library if everybody solves that problem? Why don't we just solve that problem for them? Well, plus it also means everybody does it the same way. Exactly. Once again. Right. So improvements. So I, get, I get the sense this is a very opinionated development environment. It definitely is. It's There's a lot of conventions that are developed um, in order to help everybody kind of give guidance around it so you don't sure. have to you don't have to invent the wheel you just look at well how do I use how do I make this wheel and somebody's gonna uh, have an idea about that 
Very cool. Well, uh, can, uh, did, did Anthony say that Google uses Go internally? Yeah, there's actually several applications within um, within Google that are using Go. It's continuing to slowly grow over time. Um, it's, you know, being that, what was it, version one hit was released in March of 2012. So it's a language that's three years old, three and a half years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, so to see the level of adoption act- by big companies is actually pretty impressive for a language that young. Um, I think that, oh, I don't remember the, there are some of the, you're, you're not going to see any major front end applications that are backed by go at this point. So Gmail isn't running on go, right? Sure. Um, but there are some major, um, ETL jobs and, and backend systems jobs that, uh, that Google is using go for. Very cool. Um, anything else that you want to uh, mention or talk about before we sign off? Um, no, I think that that pretty much covers it. I just, uh, anybody who's interested in learning about it, hit me up on Twitter, um, or, uh, can certainly learn. There's a lot of community supported, uh, community generated, uh, education material out there. Of course, I wouldn't mind if, if, uh, you guys go to Pluralsight, there's quite a few courses out there, uh, by several authors now. So, Hey, go, 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 go. Get up and go. (laughs) (laughs) Mike Van Sickle, thanks very much for spending this hour with us. It's been great. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the 